0: The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: It's Monday, February 1st, 2016 from Slate. It's the gist I might pesk. I just got back from Chicago. When I left for Chicago, there was two feet of snow on the ground here in New York. Now that I've returned, there's two feet of dog crap. Seriously, scientists could not concoct a dog crap preservation system better than the combination of a nor'easter and a curb. People talk about during a blizzard, people talk about nesting, people talk about blizzard sex, all the jokes about nine months later, a post-blizzard baby boom. But there is a segment of the population that just eagerly looks at a blizzard and says, Awesome. I could have my dog poop on the side of the street and I'll just bury it in the snow and no one will know. It's a foolproof crime. Actually, I know what's going on. I used to own a dog. Does one really own a dog? No. He just owns a dog poop delivery system. And it's that the trash cans are full. The trash cans are full of snow. I don't know why they don't flip over the trash cans before the snow hits and then you flip them back over and you got ready trash cans to take on all the dog poop. But that's not how they do it. They have Reams of dog poop in the snow. It's a beautiful sight about a week after the thaw post-Blizzard. We know so much more about the weather than we used to, and that's good. Like a 100 years ago, I don't know if you realize this, but we found out about blizzards through the Army Signal Corps, and the Army Signal Corps being a Signal Corps some of them would be in one state, the Dakotas, and they'd say, oh, there's a blizzard here. Let's call the people in the next state so that the Dakotas would tell Minnesota, hey, it's still a blizzard. And then Minnesota would pass it on to Wisconsin, kind of a blizzard. And then Wisconsin would tell Michigan, eh, don't worry about it, not much of a blizzard. So now we have satellites and that's so much better and we get so much more information. But there is a limit to how much the information really helps, a practical limit. So here's, here's how it works. It used to be... I'm not talking 100 years ago. I'm talking about, you know, let's say 20 years ago. We'd have conversations that went like this. Huh, how about the weather? I know, right? That'd be the answer. I know, right? But now we have Doppler radar. We have advanced warnings. We have the weather channel. We name our storms. We have the global forecast system. You don't like that one. We got the European Center for Medium-Range Weather Forecasting. We got like six different ways to forecast the weather. We have knowledge. We have names for all our phenomena. We have scientists with podcasts. So because of all that, here's how the conversation now goes. Hey, how about the weather? I know. El Nino, right? That's it. That's how the that's how the conversation has changed. We get to cite El Nino. We don't know what it is. We don't know who he is. If we do speak Spanish, we don't know why this little baby is so very mad at us. But we get to say El Nino and we think that applies and that gives us the feeling as if we have an answer and we feel better and empowered, empowered until we scrape the dog shit out of the treads of our shoes. On the show today, I will spiel a little bit about Iowa because caucuses, But first, Jason Gay, a friend of mine, he has a number of life lessons to impart in a really easy-to-read book. One of them was he knew his cancer recovery was going well when he started to get annoyed online at Starbucks. I can relate. Jason Gay is a sports columnist for the Wall Street Journal, and as such, he holds forth on Aaron Rodgers' past protection (laughs) schemes. But that's not what his new book is about. It's called Little Victories Perfect Rules for Imperfect Living. And it's, hey, Jason, how are you? Hey, how are you? And it strikes me that the reason you're a sports columnist is that there is no niche for guy who writes about everyday life columnists, but you're actually really good at that.
0: Well, that's awfully nice of you to say. You know, I'm not your everyday sports columnist. No one's reading my Wall Street Journal column to get their fantasy team. No one's reading my breakdowns of Ron Rivera's defense or lack thereof. Thank God. The book, though, is not.
1: Pure frippery or fun. There is death. There is cancer. There is your cancer, yeah. which I didn't I didn't know about you yeah. There is your dad's death, which I did know because I read I read the column. Yeah the Somewhat obituary-esque column yeah. in the journal. Yeah, which satisfied you more being able to eulogize him in the newspaper column or write it more depth in the book
0: I That's a hard one to answer. In both cases, they came rather quickly after my dad passing away. I mean, you know, in the newspaper instance, it was a week or so, a week, a week and a half maybe. But the book, uh, I had a deadline and my dad got sick pretty shortly after I agreed to write the book. And it certainly wasn't part of the planning process or the the, the the pitching of the book. It certainly wasn't part of that. But it was overwhelming my life, as you can imagine. And uh, so that was something I decided pretty soon into it that was you know, important to me and important enough to pay careful attention to because this sort of goofy message of the book, the quote-unquote little victory, the sort of mundane (laughs) everyday life achievement that we sometimes take for granted really did take on this weight with my dad. You know, small things like going for a walk around the block when he felt he could do it, taking him for a drive outside uh, outside in the country, you know, talking on the phone with his grandkids. These are, you know, again, ordinary things, things we sort of like, you know, let slide in the slipstream of everyday life, but took on such importance in those final weeks and months. And so, writing it, uh, you know, it would be an interesting exercise that I don't care to do to go back and start to do it now, because now there's, you know, a couple years or a year and a half. You know, I'm writing about this, you know, three, four months after my dad has passed away. And as I write in the book, it doesn't really hit you right away. I mean, for some people, I'm sure it does. But in my case, you know, I was kind of blank for several weeks, months afterwards because I don't know if shock was the right thing because he had been sick for quite a while, but it's not the sort of emotional rupture that you think is going to happen, uh, at least in my case.
1: Yeah, and when you write about the little victories, the little things that your dad could take pleasure in. You also touched on that when you had testicular cancer. Yeah. And the theme was the little annoyances and how you deal with like tiny annoying things.
0: Yeah. Well, there's a woman that I used to work with when I worked at GQ magazine named Mary Steele, who I love and still love, uh, who was a survivor and gave me some really great advice which was, you know, you sort of think of when you're diagnosed and when you're going through treatment, particularly when you're going through treatment because you're, you are know, sick and you're losing weight and you just feel like hell, clothes don't fit. You, you feel like an alien at all times. Uh, you know, th- there's this feeling that you're going to get to this point of epiphany that, you know, I don't need this anymore, Mike, you know, like I could throw, you know, going into this office and putting on this suit every day. I I can throw it all in the garbage and I can go start a surf shack in Imperial Beach or I can go to Kathmandu. And the truth of it is that, you know, though those epiphanies probably do happen for some people, and I'm sure we've heard of them happening. The truth is recovery oftentimes feels like a return to normalcy and normalcy is never more pronounced than when the stupid crap that drove you crazy when your life was just ordinary starts to annoy you again. So when you're sitting in the Starbucks line or standing in the Starbucks line rather and someone gives this elaborate order which sounds like they're building an addition to their house you don't sit there and say, you know what? I just came out of three months of radiation therapy. I'm just going to just let this one roll. No, yeah. you're just as pissed as you were. I'm back, baby. I'm back. <laughs> you know, and sort of that Seinfeldian kind of yeah. minutia just yeah. bugs you the same way. And I think there's something really healthy about that. And that's something that Mary said to me. She said, when the shit that bothered you before starts to bother you again— You're really back.
1: But all the media about those big change of life issues or the guy, the Pittsburgh professor who's dying, it's the exact opposite message. It's the live big and this is perspective. I was just reading about Chris Christie being upset and he had just come back from the funeral of... A friend of his who, yeah. uh, who had to uh, receive care because he had Parkinson's and he's like that's a problem what we deal with isn't problems in, in a way that's totally wrong like I, what we do every day is a problem it, it, it's not only life it, or death right and it's problem. not
0: strictly one or the yes. other you know uh, 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 you know, everyone's problems are their problems there's a quote I want to say it's Alice Walker that I remember reading when I was in college I was so, like, if you just, misquote like, someone Alice Walker's a good one yeah Churchill's a good one go with Alice Walker <laughs> De Gaulle. Um, yeah uh, it, it, I'm Brian Beluga,
1: uh, Packers <laughs> offensive lineman. <laughs>
0: I'm paraphrasing here, of course, Ms. Walker. Uh, it's the idea of uh, that everyone's problems are unto themselves, and the pettiness or the smallness or the perspective, the lack of perspective compared to other people's crises is not what's important. What's important is how that person feels in the moment. And that is to say that, yes, are there important priorities in life, which, you know, in tragedy, oftentimes get underlined? Absolutely. But does it mean that you can't be annoyed when you get to the TSA line? And it's, the you know, looks like something out of like, you know, Russia and the Mid eighties, absolutely. Not. If you're not annoyed, you're not
1: human. Yeah, in that in exactly. that case. Now, the last time you were here, we talked about biking. Yeah, you sold me on urban biking. Yeah, I know you're a big cyclist. Yeah, you know we talked just now about you having testicular cancer. <laughs> You've written a lot about Lance Armstrong, but what yeah. what do you hate him for? So my dad had cancer, too, and he doesn't like sports cheats. But he did feel that there was something empowering to Lance's yeah. message. But the people who, a lot of people who look at it say he used it as the cancer shield. It was the most cynical yeah. thing that he did. Yeah. Do you hate Armstrong more for kind of using the
0: cancer and the yellow wristband? Uh, no, I don't hate him. I, I, I sort of try not to carry that feeling you know, around with me. Yeah. Uh, you know, I had the opportunity to meet him and interview him uh, several times. You know, it is a journey that he's on in mm-hmm. terms of, you know, both losing his uh, stature in the public and his jerseys and, you know, awards and all that. I think the thing that has cost him dearly, because he's certainly not alone as a sports cheat, the thing that cost him dearly was the vociferousness of his response when anyone, whenever accused. And he really went after people and he really sought to bury Anybody that tried lives. to counter his narrative. And, he, I mean, it was exceptional in terms of the storm or the response. And, again, making it personal oftentimes, and I think that's what cost him. If this was strictly, you know, a guy in a laboratory getting injections, I think we could look at it as pawn, you know, you know, symptom of the times, which is, of course, how he would like it to be viewed. But it's different than that. And I think, you know, he did a podcast not that long ago with Joe Rogan. I don't know mm-hmm. if you ever listened to the Joe Rogan show. Yeah, it was like nine and, nine and a half hours and a half long. Hour. But, 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 <laughs> I am just going to use that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but he, you know, Lance is, he's on a journey. I mean, it's very interesting to hear. I There are, you know, I'm still involved in the sport from a coverage standpoint. I still care about it deeply. I have a lot of friends who will never, never forgive Armstrong for what he did because it was personal to them. And I completely understand that. But it is interesting. I mean, Lance is not. Not self-aware, yeah. you know. I think he recognizes that tremendous personal misjudgment happened, and you know, though the blame game can be placed around, sometimes uh, I think he knows ultimately it lies with himself. It's a very strange sports story because, as we know, you know, with our discussions about halls of fame and all this kind of other stuff and other sports, I think the public attitude. Or look at the Al Jazeera case. The public attitude towards performance enhancement, particularly as it applies to aging athletes, is changing rapidly. Yeah. Well, they're
1: going away, Al Jazeera. Don't 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 accuse Peyton Manning of something. That you <laughs> I don't can't think it. those are related, but I think an interesting thought, thought about the yeah. might of Peyton Manning. One is still standing. Yeah. And also, if Lance Armstrong had only given himself over to Little Victories instead of yellow jerseys. and
0: If king, he had just kings for one-day classics just, instead of Grand tours, Yeah, enjoy, or just enjoying
1: a ride. A nice ride in the mountains. <laughs> little Victories, perfect rules for imperfect living. I also want to say this, Jason, before we end. Yes. For this reader one thing I really like about the book and I think more books should do this to hook me is start the book exactly 15 minutes after we were together <laughs> you and I because it starts 15 minutes after the World Series at Fenway this
0: is true we're I was right trying there. to think yeah this is
1: true <laughs> I remember asking you where you staying? you said with my parents in whatever Boston you know they both Sudbury Gloucester whatever you said it's, Gloucester's it's, far it, away it's
0: not in the book but yeah. the, I was taking the cab ride home from Fenway to Belmont that night and I said damn that Mike Pascal. he's inspiring. I'm going to go home and start my first book tonight. Again,
1: a note to authors <laughs> out there: start your books this way. It's appealing to readers. <laughs> Jason Gay, author of Little Victories, Perfect <laughs> Rules for Imperfect Living. Thank you, Jason.
0: Thank you, Mike.
1: And now the spiel. Hawkeye, Hawkeye, Hawkeye. The Iowa caucuses. Caucuses. Not because there is a Democratic one and a Republican one making two caucuses. No. Even the just the Democrats or just the Republicans have caucuses. They're caucuses. Plural. The cauckeye. It is the Hawkeye cauckeye. Ay, ay, ay. And soon it will be over. It will be over soon, right? That's what we're hearing. Iowa's the end of all this. But no, no, it's not. Iowa's just the beginning. So don't you tell us newscasters that Iowa is the finish line? Don't tell us candidates themselves, even if said candidate is in a setting that naturally yields finish line imagery. Senator Rand Paul held his rally this morning at the National Sprint Car Hall of Fame and Museum, which aligned perfectly with today's rally theme, racing to the finish line. So there was no gentleman start your engine thing available there? That's not a good enough cliche. All right. Or was Rand Paul alluding to... A personal finish line of sorts. Eh? Eh? Know what I'm saying? Though so i got to say, most times with candidates on quixotic quests, I want them out, clear the field. But I kind of like Rand Paul during the debates, every once in a while, turning to a Christie or a Cruz or a General Lisa Mo Trump and saying, this is World War III you're talking about, guys. So you know what the big question in Iowa is, right? The big question is who's going to win this vote? No, that's kind of a first-generation question. So the big question is, how many people are going to turn out? So how big will turnout be? Isn't that another way of saying who will people vote for? I mean, who will they turn out to vote for? Okay, it's a little more complicated than that, as Mara Lyason explains, and then as the NPR newscaster complicates. A
2: big turnout helps Trump and Sanders, and both of those outsider candidates have been trying to expand the universe of Iowa voters by bringing in people who've never caucused before. It might be difficult for some Iowans to attend caucuses today. The National Weather Service has put much of Iowa under a winter storm warning or even a
1: blizzard warning today. The bad weather spreads from New Mexico north to Wisconsin. So big turnout helps the wackier, crazier, more grassrootsy candidate. Because we know something about grassroots, they easily blow away in a storm. Actually, I do not think that's a true botany fact. But the thinking is that the exciting new unusual candidates need to rely on new unusual caucus-goers. Because they're the ones who stoke passion. See, reliably showing up to vote for Hillary Clinton, definitely voting for Hillary Clinton, unwaveringly supporting Hillary Clinton, that's not passion. We need the high turnout. We need the passionate voter. We need the voter who's so passionate that he might not even show up at all. That's how passionate he is. Or on the Republican side, not, not passionate, angry aggrieved, we want our country back, we want change, not necessarily walk through a snowstorm change, more like have someone else build a hypothetical wall that's gonna be paid for by people we don't like in the first place change. That's the angry, that's the passion we're talking about. These reliable voters, blech, democracy based on people you could count on? It shouldn't be, it should be based on people ruled by passion. Who wants to live under a government governed by the unangry? Or governed by the people who aren't easily dissuaded by snow. That doesn't sound like a dynamic, exciting government to me. We want government to be exciting and passionate. We know all this, though, don't we? Because all this played out as recently as the last quadrennium. So as we get ready to go absolutely bonkers over the import and implications of tonight's Iowa caucuses, let's remember that reverberating clarion call put forth by the last Iowa caucuses.
2: Uh, Again, in terms of what we know right now, NBC is calling this
1: race too close to call. All right, we're gonna gonna have to skip a little later in the night.
2: At this point, still too close to call with 97% of the vote in. Look at the vote difference between these two candidates. Rick Santorum in the lead, if you can call it that, by 37 votes. As Chuck Todd was pointing out earlier tonight, there is no recounting.
1: All right, a little after that, eventually, here's what we found out.
2: Former Pennsylvania Senator Rick Santorum, while he was speaking tonight, we got in our latest numbers right now. As far as we know, with 98 percent of the vote in, look at this. Between him and Mitt Romney, the difference is five votes.
1: Anyway, eventually, Rachel Maddow did tell us that Rick Santorum won by a couple votes. But because it was so close, you would expect a learned MSNBC commentator like Lawrence O'Donnell, not to exaggerate how important that was, right?
2: This uh, uh, Santorum outcome, it cannot be exaggerated. This is a big event.
1: Big. He won by eight votes. We think. We think he won by eight votes. We still don't really know. To this day, some of the votes were lost. How big could it have been? Or maybe... The media has to pretend it's big no matter what happens, or maybe the media legitimately convinces themselves that it's big, even when it winds up not being that big. I mean, in 2008, Huckabee won by 11,000 votes, not eight votes. But then four years later, here was Rachel Maddow saying this of Rick Santorum. Nobody's been really talking about this as a, as a Huckabee-type win or a Pat Robertson-type win. Everybody is
2: still really talking about what this means in terms of trouble for Mitt Romney.
1: No, those guys won by thousands. Santorum maybe won by eight. But Matt buttressed her Santorum-mentum theorem by roping in an actual Republican to agree with her.
2: Steve, I want to ask you first, if watching that campaign speech there, you feel like he seems he, — he's, he's less of a Huckabee uh, and more of a nominee.
1: That was a major league speech. Uh, He just hit that ball 440 yards, you know, out down the middle of the fairway. Actually, he was far closer to Huckabee than nominee. The win was actually more of a curiosity or to keep Steve Schmidt's golf metaphor going, a two-stroke penalty, a triple bogey on a par three. I can do this endlessly. But I will say this, in truth, For all the scorn I've heaped on the Hawkeyes, there is something to be said for the claim that it's the finish line and that the caucuses are important because it is an end to the formless chatter, to the miasmic prognostication. It's taking all the nascent gases that are swirling around in this atmosphere And it's seeing some of the reactions. Iowa does tell us something, not nearly as much as the realities of wall-to-wall cable coverage pretends it tells us, but it does tell us something. Like if Trump wins and he polls somewhere in the 30s and Cruz comes in second in the 20s and Rubio does really anywhere in the teens, the Republican race won't be seriously upended. But if something other than it happens, it might. If Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton come close to each other, it won't change that race much either. Oh, everyone will say it will, but it won't. We will have a week and a day until the New Hampshire primary, not a caucus. And no matter how much coverage you fit into that week and that day, it will not begin to compare to the epic that was spent before tonight. So for the foreseeable future, political coverage after tonight will seem proportional, comparatively proportional, in line with what actually is a quite fascinating and important story. And we will know more. And we will be distracted less. And viable candidates will emerge. And starting lines and finish lines will not be mistaken for each other. And pizza ranches will be two fine nouns apart, but never forced to merge together. And the Des Moines Register will barely register. And then, in four years, we'll look to Iowa, having learned our lesson this time, and we will never be sucked in by this ridiculousness again. And that's it for today's show. Keep sending us uh, mixed metaphors about where we stand in the campaign, like Katie Niehaus sending us the sprint to the finish in Iowa, and Poor Pete sending us that HuffPo earlier had the headline and the subhead candidates make final pitch. Those are two different sports. Our Twitter account is at SlateGist, and we're on Facebook.com slash SlateGist. Gist producer Andrea Salenzi did not win tonight, but she did play the role of spoiler. Steve Lichtai exceeded expectations, but it wasn't party media or donor expectations. It was the expectations of his boss, Panoply chief content officer Andy Bowers, who was just hoping to hire an executive producer who, quote, wasn't quite so drunk all the time. The Gist... I've pledged to visit all 99 counties. But I've been looking at a map, and Delaware has three. I'm going for that. Peru, de, peru, do, peru, and thanks for listening.